Well, welcome today. Great to have each of you here. Good to be here with you to worship together with you. Um, we're in a series of messages on marriage. So if you are in that category of you are married, you're thinking about marriage, you know someone who is married or could use some help in their marriage, I think that I've covered every one of us now, then you're in the right place. We're going to go to God's Word together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 today. So the last two weeks we've looked at Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 and 2 is where we get a blueprint of God's design and plan for our relationships with one another and with Him. And as God created male and female in His image, along with all the other aspects of creation, He said, it is good, it is good, it is good. He got to Adam by Himself there with all the animal kingdom. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. And He blesses him with this helpmate designed by God to perfectly be the counterpart for Adam. And then he says it is very good at that point. And so that, that ends uh, Genesis 2. Then we get to Genesis 3, which we covered last week, the bad news, where sin gets in and taints God's plan for creation. Sin creates barriers in our relationships with one another and with him. Sin is what produces shame and hiding and self-preservation and going after what we see and desire rather than what God has spoken through his word. And so now we get to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, at the end of chapter 5, the verses that are actually about marriage that we're not going to cover today, we're going to save for next week, uh, Paul gives some instructions to wives and to husbands. But it's within this context of a letter to a church in a very pagan city that's very complicated. So there in Ephesus, there are both Jewish and Gentile believers. So you have followers of Jesus that have come through Judaism, and they've known all the Old Testament, and they've now come to discover that the Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. And he is God's solution to the problem of sin. And he's the one that all of the Old Testament pointed forward to, all the sacrificial system, all the blood of all those animals during the days of the slaughterhouse in the Old Testament. How many of you are thankful we don't live in that time? You didn't have to bring a sheep and a butcher knife with you to church today, right? I don't know if Grandview would continue to allow us to use the facility if that's what we were doing. And so to the Jewish believers, the message here in the letter to the Ephesians is that Jesus is the culmination of Israel's history. Jesus is the one that it all pointed forward to. Jesus is God's solution to a broken world. The one that undoes the effects of the fall and the curse in Genesis 3. But there are also there in Ephesus Gentile believers. Do we have any Gentiles in the room? Any non-Jewish people here? Okay, there's a few of us here. And, and so the good news is good news for people like those of us living in North America in the 21st century. Those who do not come from ethnic Israel. Those who were uh, coming from backgrounds of paganism. Not from the history of the Old Testament but from worshiping false gods. And for these Gentile believers, especially on the streets of the cities of Eph city of Ephesus, these Gentile believers had a daily reminder of that paganism from which they were saved when they came to Jesus. Right there in Ephesus, there's a temple to the goddess Artemis, a grotesque sexual goddess that you can tell by looking at the statue of Artemis that, that sex is a part of their worship. And so really, a, a culture that is still stuck and trapped and even deifying what we saw in Genesis 3. 
So Genesis 3, distorting our relationships with one another. And really, the story of the rest of Genesis, 47 chapters of sordid sexual sin, of violence, of broken relationships, people taking from one another and hurting one another and going for self-preservation. And so Paul now is tapping into some of those themes from Genesis. In fact, at the end of Ephesians 5, he quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2. We'll get there next week, so stay tuned. But you've probably heard it at every wedding ceremony you've ever, ever attended. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will be joined together as one flesh. And Paul connects that story, that picture, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the verses we're going to focus in on today are at the beginning of Ephesians 5. So to set a little bit of context, really this is a theme throughout Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus saying, you know, you Jewish believers, you Gentile believers, you men, you women, here's how you live in the new life because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Here's how you not remain dead in your trespasses and stuck in that old pattern of living that we read about in Genesis 3. Here's how you get on board with God's plan of redemption that points forward to the end of history when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, every knee will bow before him to acknowledge his lordship. But it also points back to the beginning of history when God said it is good, it is good, it is very good. So really, we're now at that central point of history where Jesus has come and he has launched God's kingdom restoration mission and we get to be a part of that just as the believers did here in Ephesus. So as Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, it's also a letter to us right here in Aurora today. And so let's come with that heart that says, God, speak to us, change us by your word and through your word. Well, to, to set up, again, a little bit more of the context here in chapter 5, uh, looking back in chapter 2, we see this theme beginning of moving from death to life, moving from the old self to the new self. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And there's a bleak picture there that's really a summary of Genesis 3. Eve in the garden, the serpent comes to her and tempts her. Hey, hey Eve, did God really say Introduces some confusion, some skepticism, some disbelief, unbelief, questioning the word of God. Brings some confusion, kind of misquotes God. And then Eve in turn also misquotes God. Well, no, he, he didn't say that we couldn't eat of any of the trees, just that one tree, and we can't even touch it, she added. And then she went after not what she had heard from God's word, but instead what she saw with her eyes and desired because it looked tasty and it looked good and she lusted after it. And there was pride where she thought, I know better than God does himself. And there was this acquisitive nature of saying, it sounds good to have that ability to know the difference of right and wrong myself and cut God out of the equation. That's the mindset that Paul is writing against here in his letter to the church in Ephesus the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And before you start to point fingers at everybody else, Ephesians, 
And Coloradans, Paul says, among whom we all once lived. So when there's one finger pointing out with accusation, there's three more pointing back, right? Paul confronts confronts that belief system that is pervasive in our world and he reminds the Ephesian believers that's who you were, dead in your trespasses and sins, under the wrath of God. Before the good news is good news, you first need to know the bad news. If the doctor says, hey, I've got some good news for you. We have chemotherapy and radiation. We're going to nuke every cell in your body with poison from inside and outside. And you're going, that is not good news whatsoever. And then the doctor backtracks a second, says, oh, I forgot to mention, you're going to die of cancer within the next three months. What? Now that you've got the bad news, are you ready for the good news? There's a cure. It's called chemotherapy and radiation. And we're going to blast every cell in your body from the inside and the outside. And suddenly, the good news is actually good news, right? And so Paul leads with the bad news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hopefully we let that sink in today. Those phrases there in Ephesians 2, sons of disobedience, the passions of our flesh determining the course of our life, children of wrath, separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, having no hope without God as he turns to the verses directed toward the Gentile believers. In the world, far off, but then there's this awesome phrase that, that happens in, chap, in, in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God. You were dead, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then we get to those verses that we've all Memorize if you ever went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school when you were a kid, right? Or Awana or wherever. If, if you have a church background, you've probably memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9. If you've forgotten it or you never memorized it, it's time. So get out a note card this week and write it down and memorize those verses that remind us of the grace and the faith and the salvation because of Jesus. We're made alive. We're raised up. We're seated with Jesus. There's grace, there's faith, there's God's gift. We are his workmanship. There's this walking in the good works of God's design, being brought near by the blood of Christ, and that's a message for both Jewish and Gentile believers. And so in light of that, those two possibilities, either being dead in our trespasses or being made alive in Christ, either being stuck back in Genesis 3 or beginning that process of renewing God's good plan for creation that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, what do we do? There's two possibilities. Stay dead in our trespasses or be made alive in God. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you're in the second category. You're made alive. So what do you do? There's still some imperative verbs in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and, and to the church in Aurora. Some things that we need to do. Okay? It's not just enough to go, hey, I'm, I'm made alive. I'm good to go. My marriage should be perfect now. Sin has been addressed. Maybe not in her. Right? Maybe not in him. And so there are some 
do this and don't do that that comes with being made alive. Some action. There's some putting off and some putting on. In chapter 4, the verse is leading right up to the beginning of chapter 5 here, verse 20. Paul says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Not in this dead in your trespasses way. Not as in the darkness living. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Hey Eve, yes, we acknowledge you have a desire to take that fruit and eat of it. You have a desire to make yourself a God, lowercase g. You would like to have knowledge of good and evil directly for yourself instead of having to come to your creator and walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day and say, Dad, is this good or bad? I live by your word, not by my knowledge. Eve, we acknowledge that you have those desires, but that path leads to destruction. Put off your old self. Put off that former manner of life. Put off those deceitful desires. And verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a putting off and there's a putting on. There's this new way of being human that begins when you encounter Jesus. There's a cheapened message of the gospel that just says, what does the individual need to get that ticket to heaven? And if that's the way you came to Jesus, you're missing out on the fullness of the gospel. It's bigger than that. It is that, but that's just a part of being a part of God's great plan that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. It is good. It is good. It is very good. No more broken relationships. No more slavery to sin. No more eternal death. Instead, the abundant life that God intends and provides through his son, Jesus Christ. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. How do you do that? This is starting to sound like a self-help book, right? Hey, you know, you, you just need to come up with a plan, stick with it. Purpose statement, vision statement, mission statement, make it happen. You know, get th- that new diet is really going to be the one that, if you just purpose and intend, be more intentional, be strategic, don't go for good, go for great. If you've read any of those self-help books and tried to implement them, you've probably felt like I do, like, you know, Three months later, it didn't really help a whole lot. And when it comes to our struggle against sin, even as those who are in Christ and that new life has begun, self-help doesn't get us very far in our battle against sin. But there is good news here coming in Ephesians 5 that there is a power outside of ourselves that enables us to live that obedient faith to put on that new self, that new manner of life, those new desires, the new way of thinking, the new way of speaking with your neighbor, the new way of managing your anger, we see at the end of chapter four, the new tasks for your hands to do. Those of you that were thieves, now use your hands to do productive work. New talk coming out of your mouth. Kindness tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and now really putting it into practice here at the beginning of chapter 5. Being imitators of God. 
as beloved children, walking in love. We are getting to Ephesians 5. Still with me here? But let me just challenge you this week. What is the one task that God is calling you to do in the next seven days in practice to put off that old self? Okay, again, this is not a self-help thing. I'm not telling you to just kind of dig down a little bit deeper, try a little bit harder, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But really, we're going to see that the secret power to live out that new life, to walk in newness of life, that ripples out and affects our marriage and our relationships with others and our struggle against sin and our ability to live for God, that power is through God's Holy Spirit. So what's the one action that God is calling you to this week to move from the old me to the new me? I would encourage you to pray to the Holy Spirit this week and pray the very words here in Ephesians in the the letter to Ephesus. Say, Holy Spirit, empower me to imitate God. Help me to walk in Christ's love. Help me to live for God and for others. The picture that we see in Jesus himself. Or to do some of the very practical things there in Ephesians chapter 4. Forgive someone. If you want to walk in that new life, it's time to do that thing that God is calling you to do. To say, you know, hanging on to that unforgiveness is actually the old self. Because God forgave me through Christ and he calls me right here explicitly at the end of Ephesians 4 to forgive. So this is the week that I will choose and decide to forgive. Holy Spirit, I need your help because I can't do that on my own. There's a lot that I see in, in those first few chapters of Ephesians that deal with our appetites. So is there an appetite that he's calling you to deny this week, to starve out, to say you're not getting fed anymore? And then is there a new appetite that he's calling you to develop and to say, God, I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness, not after what this world tantalizes me with. There's also a lot of verses here that deal with our tongue. Uh, chapter 4, verse 29, that our words should build up, edify. So the speech that comes out of our mouth should, when, when someone gets done receiving those words, they should leave going, man, I just feel, I feel built up. And to give grace. So that's a practical thing that God may be calling you to this week as you put off, there's an action here, right? Put off the old self and put on the new self by the power of God's Spirit and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's get to Ephesians chapter 5 now, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a great way to give instructions. You begin with a a positive, affirmative command, right? You know, if a kid's running through here later, you don't say, don't run. You say, walk. And that's what God's Spirit is communicating to, uh, to us. Do it this way. Be like a beloved child looking to your father, your perfect creator, God, daddy, and then imitate him. 
So what you see in his heart, in his character, as represented through his son Jesus, follow after that, imitate it. Mimic him. What does that look like? Verse 2, walk in love. That opens a whole can of worms. Okay, last week I think I said if, if it weren't for sin, if it weren't for Genesis 3, we wouldn't need a sermon series on marriage. Right? We would be doing it perfectly. We'd be in perfect harmony and communion and fellowship with one another. We would already be walking in love. But the fact of Genesis 3 and the reality that we live in today means that we have brokenness in our marriages. And when we see a phrase like walk in love, we hear that through minds that are confused because of the distorted pictures of love that exist in our culture today. One of the prevalent ideas on relationships and marriage and looking for that knight in shining armor is the, the me marriage. This isn't my idea. This is the book that I recommend in your sermon notes. Um, you could take a look at that. I encourage you to pick up a copy by Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. The me marriage idea is basically this. Your mission, young people, your mission is to go out there, find someone of the opposite gender who's pretty well put together, who doesn't need a lot of work, and who, who will not require you to change in any way. That is someone with whom you will be compatible. They won't need you to fix them at all, and they will just accept you exactly as you are, not expect you to, to develop or change in any way. That's, that's the basic message of our culture when it comes to relationships. And we got a lot of marriages ending because they thought they found that knight in shining armor till day two of the honeymoon. And they're like, wait a minute, you don't squeeze the tube from the bottom and flatten it as you go up? What's the matter with you? Don't you even read directions? You hang the toilet paper roll so the paper comes out against the wall? <laughs> or more serious sin issues like those that we're seeing here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So when it says walk in love, those are, that's the images that we bring to mind. Oh, it's, yeah, it's like that, that butterfly feeling that you get when, when she walks into the room. Those tingles and goosebumps, right? Well, the definition of love that Paul is exhorting here in Ephesians 5 too is not a cultural description of love. He goes on to unpack it. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now you need to ask the question, oh, so we are to be imitators of God and to walk in love, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. Well, what's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated? You can go back and read the Gospels with that question in mind. Read through all four of the Gospels. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What did love look like as demonstrated through our Savior, Jesus Christ? And if you want a summary, maybe you missed it there in the second half of verse 2. Paul gives it to us. Two things. He gave himself up for us. And he lived as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If I was going to put that in my own words, I would say that love looks like this, that you give yourself in obedience to God and sacrificially for others. 
That's really the picture of love that Jesus demonstrates. And if you go out and poll 100 Americans today and ask them what is love, I'll bet you you'll get zero that give you that definition of love. Their version of love will be something focused on me. Love is, you know, when you find someone who really fulfills you and completes you. That's me loving me. Love is when someone completes you and, they, and, and, and you can spend a lifetime with them and they bring fulfillment to you. Well, that's me loving me again. But this kind of love is not a goosebump. It's not a butterfly feeling. This is a decision to put off that thing that Paul categorized as the old self and to live as that new creation that is looking to Jesus and saying, how do I be like him? How do I be an imitator of God? How do I put on that kind of love? And I mentioned briefly there in Genesis 3 all of the sin that comes after that initial sin. It wasn't that Eve took the fruit and then Adam just innocently got dragged along. He tried that technique with God, right? The woman that you gave me, it's her fault and your fault. No, he actively participated in sin himself. It's not just that we are under the curse of Adam's sin. We each actively participate in sin. You see that played out in Genesis 3 in relationship after relationship where there's this perversion, there's this distortion, there is this not good following God's good creation in Genesis 1 and 2. 47 chapters of violence and sordid sexual sin. Genesis 6, here's how God summarizes it as he's about to bring judgment during the days of Noah. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Would that be your summary statement of our world today? Are you that pessimistic about what you see in the world around us? That every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men and women is only evil continually. I, I would have to say pretty much yes. Apart from Christ, that's, that's the world we live in today. And then you see example after example in Genesis of Cain killing his brother Abel. The, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where there's distorted perversion, abuse. There's the story of Lot and his daughters. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Jacob's daughter Dinah being defiled. Judah and Tamar. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's just a very clear picture. If you sit down and read through the 50 chapters of Genesis, you're going to see this theme. That You're also going to ask, how can we ever teach anything from Genesis in kids' ministry? This is clearly a rated R book of the Bible. And it's a picture of taking from others for one's own gratification. Really treating each other like that fruit on the tree that Eve took that said, it looks good for me. I'll take and eat without any consideration for the ramifications of this choice. That's how we've been treating each other since Genesis 3. And in contrast to that, God says, walk in love. What does it look like? It's the exact opposite of everything in Genesis chapters 3 through 
50. It looks like Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Give yourself obediently to God and sacrificially for others and stop living for you. That's the message here in these first couple of verses. And here uh, Paul then unpacks it and gets, gets explicit. It sounds like the rest of Genesis. Here's the opposite of what I just told you, Ephesus and Aurora. Look like Jesus, walk in love, not like verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is, the ple- what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, those themes of that old self, the new self, the darkness, the light, not continuing in that Genesis 3 way of living where we take from one another and it leads to shame and hurt. We treat each other as objects to be used for our own self-gratification. But this new way of living that Jesus models and we pray, God's Spirit, enable me to be an imitator of Christ. Enable me to imitate God as I look to Jesus as the perfect example of what love looks like. Help me to be a fragrant offering to God, a sacrifice to him. Help me to give myself up for those that he's brought into my life to demonstrate his love too. How do you do that? Well, here, here comes the power now in the last verses of this section that we're covering today, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now if you were to sentence diagram out the end of this passage listen to that to that charge okay don't be drunk with wine so it's it's con, it's con, paul is contrasting and saying okay there is this of the world way of living where you pursue your own desires where you're not careful how you walk where you're unwise 
where you don't make the best use of the time, where you get on board with the agenda of the evil days in which you live. But here's the new way. Be filled with the Spirit. Colon. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Paul unpacks it for us phrase by phrase. Step one. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When you are filled with God's Spirit, it affects the way that you communicate with the other believers that he's brought into your life. And it looks like this, words that are filled with praise and grace, where there's joy, where there's tenderheartedness, where there's no slander and malice, where there's that forgiveness that was demonstrated by Christ, seasoning our communication with one another. No unwholesome talk, but rather what is helpful for building others up and is beneficial to those who listen. Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Point two, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's joy. It's not drudgery. It's not saying, well, now I have to be an imitator of God. I have to walk in love as Christ demonstrated. No, there's joy that comes down that path. As you are filled with the power of God's Spirit, to actually walk in newness of life, to walk as a child of light. You will be singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It doesn't even have to sound good to the rest of us. God, your loving Father, will receive it as praise whether you are on pitch or not. So just express that joy as God fills you with his spirit and empowers you to imitate God and walk in love, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates. Point three, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit actually enables you to remember Genesis 1 and 2 and to say, wow, this all belongs to him. He is the one true creator God who made everything good for his glory, who is restoring creation to his good purposes, who calls me to be a part of that great plan of redemption. And so there's thanksgiving that bursts forth from your heart. So there's a new way of speaking to one another. There's joy in your own heart. And then there's thanksgiving toward God. That happens as you're filled with God's spirit. Now listen to this last verse that's bullet point four of what Paul says happens when you are filled with the Spirit. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that leads into a whole section on what does that look like. Well, what this is, it's really the working out of what happened in Verse 1, the picture of love that Jesus demonstrates. Jesus has attained full maturity, full manhood. Okay, He's not a a half-ripe banana. He has achieved that purpose for which God created him. Fully realized, fully actualized, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. That picture of Jesus is that he is able to live for others and for his Father. 
And we see that now, a glimpse of that, as we are filled with the Spirit in verse 21. We are now enabled to stop living for me and to start living in a way that submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I'm remembering, what did my Savior do? Wait a minute. He got down on his hands and knees in the upper room that Passover night, right before he's about to be betrayed, face a mock trial, suffer and die for crimes he did not commit. He got down on his hands and knees and washed the smelly feet of these 12 sinners that had been following around for three years. He, he went to a cross nailed between two convicted criminals who deserved what they got. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He didn't come to put a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand and sit on a throne with a robe. He came meek and lowly and submissive. He didn't come to do his will, but the will of his Father. That doesn't sound like my life today. What about you? And it's only as we are filled with God's Spirit that we receive the power to walk in God's will and to love others where we can actually put into practice what we've been instructed to do here in this passage and getting really to verse 21, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What would happen in your marriage this week if you had two people, a husband and a wife, who both came to God and said, Dad, give me the strength to imitate you this week. Help me to love like you do, Lord Jesus. Help me to submit to the other, to not live for myself, but to live sacrificially for others and obediently to you. Help me to give up knowledge of good and evil and all that comes with that and instead to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Undo the effects of the curse and sin's grasp on my life. Help me to walk in newness of life. What would happen if you had two partners that each did that? Well, the picture would be a beautiful picture of two people giving to one another. Instead of Genesis 3 through 50, of person after person taking from one another. And marriage can last in a mediocre state of existence with two people mutually agreeing, yeah, you know, I'll take from you and I'll begrudgingly allow you to take from me. Or you can have the beauty and the joy that comes when you both willingly empowered by God's Spirit, give to one another. And if you're married this week, I'd like to pray a blessing on you. If you're looking forward to that, let me tell you what, you will not find single people, you will not find a man or a woman who will fulfill you and complete, complete you. Husbands and wives that are here today, don't be looking to your spouse to fill the void within you. Your spouse has no ability to turn you into a new creation, to help you walk in newness of life. That's something that God's Spirit does in you and through you. And so today, let's each come humbly before God and say, God, you be the one that fulfills me. You be the one that completes me. You be the one that enables me to become a one so that that math of Genesis 2, the two become one, that doesn't add up mathematically. Some of you mathematicians help me out here, but I think you know one plus one usually equals two. But somehow in God's 
mathematics. When you have one complete person whose identity is rooted in Christ and they've become whole and one and in newness of life because of Jesus' work and the power of the Spirit, and then you pair them up with someone else who's doing the same thing, another believer, somehow that math adds up and one plus one equals one. And so let's pray that God will bring those sorts of relationships within our body. The world is looking in, saying, what does this look like to follow Jesus? Are you any different? Is your life any different from mine? Do you have any more joy than I do? Are your marriages more fulfilling and successful than mine? And they're looking to us as an example of that new life, that in the light sort of living that God has called us to. So let's together go to him in prayer. Say, God, fill us, change us in your presence. Why don't we stand together before the Lord today? Lord God, we do thank you for the power of your spirit. We thank you, God, that you have sealed your salvation in our hearts by your spirit. That, that, Holy Spirit, you are the down payment of our inheritance as we await your full redemption. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you grant us access to the Father. Thank you that you build us together with one another in your body, the church. No matter what racial or ethnic background we come from, you bring about unity. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the conduit through which the Father strengthens us with power in our inner being that enables us to have Christ dwell in our hearts. Thank you that you reveal the full power of God's love, that you allow us to be filled with the fullness of God. Thank you that you're uniting the body of Christ right here. Thank you that you're filling us, that you're bringing joy to our relationships with fellow believers, that you're helping us to express thankfulness to God, that you're teaching us to live for others rather than ourselves. Thank you that you give us the offensive weapons that we need against the devil's schemes in our lives, that you reveal the truth of God's word to us, that you, through prayer, allow us to pray the heart of God. And Holy Spirit, today we acknowledge our need of you. We pray for the marriages represented right here in this room. I pray that this week would be a week of joy, a week of newness, a week of dying to self and living for others, a week of allowing you to have your rightful place as our Lord. God, we want to be imitators of you. We want to look to Jesus as our source and example of what love really is. And so today, I pray, God, in the marriages right here in this room, that your power would be unleashed, that the power of your spirit would enable us to walk in that newness of life, that there would be husbands who deny themselves, who live in obedience to you, Lord Jesus, who follow after you as their example, who submit themselves and their desires for the sake of their wives. I pray, Lord, for wives in this room, that would come to you as their source of strength and fulfillment, that would willingly and sacrificially give the kind of love that you demonstrate, Lord Jesus. We know that the enemy is out to attack us as individuals, as couples, and as a body. And so today we pray against the schemes of our enemy. And we ask that you would fill us with your power.
and your love this week. In Jesus' name, amen.